everyone. Welcome to episode number six of Detestus, a podcast for global expression and discussion by Detester Magazine, a youth-led creative platform that amplifies BIPOC activism through creative expression. I'm your host, Sophia. And I'm your co-host, Sina. And with us, we have two amazing panelists, Emily XR Pan, New York Times bestselling author of The Astonishing Color of After, and Sharon Hurley-Hall, who is an anti-racist author and educator. All right, and so we first wanted to start, I know we did a brief introduction already, uh, but we'd love to have you do, uh, you know, tell us about yourself, throw in a fun fact. Oh gosh, a fun fact. <laughs> um, Sharon, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, so I'm Sharon Hurley-Hall. I am a writer, an anti-racism writer. I'm the founder of Sharon's Anti-Racism Newsletter. I have actually just joined an organization called Diverse Leaders Group, which is aiming to fight racism and inequity from leadership down. Uh, I'm the author of Exploring Shadism, a book about colorism, and of a forthcoming book, which is a collection of anti-racism essays. Uh, fun fact, hmm, fun fact about me. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, well, I don't know if it's a fun fact, but it's a fact. It's, I'm a Reiki master. I'm a Reiki master in the Usui Ooh. tradition. So something a little bit different that I don't talk about as much, but but yes. And I've been I've been I've practiced Reiki since 2006, and I became a Reiki master in 2016. Oh wow, that is impressive. I mean, the commitment. <laughs> I gotta admire that. I am Emily X Arpan, and my first novel was The Astonishing Color of After. Uh, my newest novel that just came out a couple of months ago is An Arrow to the Moon. Um, I live in New York City. And a fun fact about me, I play the mandolin. Awesome. Uh, that's so funny sometimes because I have to tell my friends, like, authors have hobbies too, you know? You don't just sit around and write all day. <laughs> True. All right. Yeah. All right. And now, just kind of as an icebreaker question, we would love to know, what is your favorite genre of book? Uh, and do you have any titles? Of course, your own. But other than that, what are some <laughs> stuff you've been reading? I read widely a wide range of things and I've you know flirted with different genres at times like mysteries and thrillers but one genre that I keep coming back to is science fiction right I started with Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury and all the all the classics and right now I'm reading something about um, a race of octopus that is that has invaded the earth called the Ceph um, and and I also read the other the other thing that I do is I read a lot of books about anti-racism. So the last book I read in that regard was Shireen Daniels' book about the anti-racist organization, which was really really good. Um, I I read very widely. I read all sorts of things, all sorts of genres. I don't particularly have a favorite. I am very much in fiction. I'm drawn to uh, when magic is integrated into the real world, which I think also kind of shows in, in my writing because I gravitate towards writing that. Uh, in nonfiction, I love to read all sorts of things. I love to read about um, plant medicine. I love to read, <clears throat> um, you know, like for example, one of my favorites is um, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer, which I feel like should be required reading for all humans. Uh, she's, you know, uh, this incredible, force um she's a oh gosh what is it called she's a member she's a citizen of the uh oh god i feel like i'm gonna say it wrong the potawatomi 
uh, nation. Mm-hmm. And, and she's like spent her entire life learning about and teaching about plants and their relationships to them. So her book is like a combination of indigenous wisdom and science. Like she is an academic. She has studied things um, in kind of the Western format. And she also talks about how our mindset around plants and around botany and such uh, are also, you know, um, subject to colonialism and, and, and sort of, yeah, uh, how, you know, that really impacts the way that we learn and the way that we think about things and the way that we value the way that we learn. So I love her and I would love to go back and get another degree just to study with her. So my nonfiction is in that direction. I also, um, I do read a lot of fiction, a book that I loved, that I've been obsessed with for the last few years that I tell everybody to run out and buy and read is Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe, which is about this teenage girl growing up in 1950s San Francisco. Uh, She's dealing with the Red Scare. She's dealing with all these cross-cultural issues, right? Because Mm -hmm. she's Asian American, she's Chinese American. She's also at the same time figuring out that she's queer. And it's such an incredible exploration and the amount of research and work Melinda put into capturing all that is just phenomenal. Like the back of the book, the authors know about all the history and all the research itself is like, it feels almost like a dissertation. It's incredible. Uh, I also love the work of Anna Marie McLemore, everything they write. It has a little bit of that magic integrated into the real world. Uh, used to deal with questions of identity and belonging and dealing with trauma. And it's all just so incredibly well done. So I'll just shout out those few recommendations. On that note, I just wanted to ask that, do you think that based on your wide variety of reading that that combines with your work, for example, reading science fiction and also dealing with um, anti-racism and furthering that as well as, you know, contemporary novel and literature with other things like dissertations and that kind of analysis of plants and botany as well? That is a really interesting question, Sophia. And I'm going to take it a stage back to say that I am definitely Camp Star Trek instead of Camp Star Wars. So I always enjoyed that vision of a society that existed after they had dealt with racism, after they had dealt with xenophobia. And I suppose somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm hoping that one day we're going to get to that utopia and that my work will help with that. But I also think that reading widely is necessary for any good writer, you know, because you actually never know what is going to inspire you, what is going to spark a thought, where connections are going to be made. And so it's, it, it is not unusual in, you know, even in the, the essays that I write, for something to just just pop into my head. And it also gives you another way to connect with readers, I think, who who might get into your work in a different way because they might have watched a particular thing or read a particular book and they might relate to it in a way. And then that gives them another entry point into your work. So Mm. I think it's really really important. I agree. I think not only is it important to us being better writers and being able to uh, connect more and understand more it also is crucial to us being better humans and being 
inspired to think about what are the what are how can we envision a better world right a lot of the time i read fiction i i have this um distinct memory of being a teenager and reading fiction and thinking why can't our world be like x or mm. y or z and even though those worlds might have been magical or sci-fi that kind of envisioning that kind of hope i think is really necessary especially for where we are right now we're dealing with you know so many so many different stressors so many different conflicts and problems and it can be so easy to become jaded by all of it and just be pessimistic and down but what do we hope if we could eliminate all the isms today what do we think we would want the world to look like what do we think we want society to look like and yeah. that's so hard to think about it's almost it's almost unimaginable because my entire identity and lived experience has been defined by isms right yeah. right yes. and so i think also reading widely contributes to us being able to dream and envision and and hope and have something that we are actively working towards and yeah. and yeah. walk in someone else's shoes for a little while i think as well you know it just it expands the imagination i believe yeah i agree that's beautiful to hear you say that because you know sophia and i we do a lot of like hardcore research with numbers and you know citations and everything and sometimes you know we're also both like suckers for poetry and we get drawn back into that and as you said like we see the connections and it helps us kind of imagine like even though our life and our work here is kind of defined by as emily said like isms and these kinds of constructs that we're trying to analyze and um, and describe in terms that we can understand, you know, sometimes we get caught up in it and we don't realize that, hey, yeah. like, this is all because a better world is possible. So mm -hmm. I'm going to go off track a little bit, but because Emily did mention reading books as a teenager, I'm really curious, what is a book or I guess a piece of media that really, really defined either your childhood or being a teenager? I am going to go back to what I said before. I, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's got to be, it's got to be Star Trek for me. It's got to be that possibility of a better world and a better future and of using technology the right way, which I'm not sure is happening right now. And, uh, you know, I think I was, I wasn't even a teenager when I started watching it. I'm still a huge fan. I watch everything, even the ones that aren't very good. And I, I still like that idea that, you know, there are these possibilities for change. There is that world beyond focusing on isms. Um, I don't know if I can pick a particular piece of reading, but related to that, when I think about it, I guess I've always been fascinated by the intersection of technology and humanity, because I remember the robot stories of Isaac Asimov making a huge impression on me as a teenager. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I remember reading the book of three in the fifth grade by Lloyd Alexander. I feel like those books are not like they have a cult following the people who love them, but I rarely hear people talk about them. It's uh, part of the book of three is part of a series called the Pridane Chronicles. And the second book got made into an animated film. The second book is the Black Cauldron and got made into an animated film many, many years ago. But my fifth grade teacher had us read the entire series 
and it was the first time I had read books that had like hints of magic and whatnot in them. It was the first time I read something that was entirely in a secondary fantasy world and it blew my mind that mm -hmm. I could that things could be imagined that way and that very much started to shape I was already writing stories back then and that very much started to shape the way I thought about what was possible in fiction this idea that I could create an entire another world which I think you know it's easy to say oh we're thinking about it in terms of fiction in terms of media fantasy but going back to my earlier point we need to be able to envision another world to have something to work towards right right uh i also it, like this question actually causes me so much pain now because a huge huge influence when i was young was harry potter and i'm now like i any mention of harry potter any reference to it just causes me so much anger now, you know, and I was so the reason why Harry Potter was so formative for me was because a friend of mine was like, hey, I went on the Internet and I discovered this thing called fan fiction and people are literally writing stories about these characters. And I scoffed at it at first. I was like, I'm writing original fiction. Like, why would anybody write fan fiction? And then I was curious to so why I started reading some fan fiction and discovered that really incredible things were happening that it was there's this community where people could put their writing up and people would respond and it was real time feedback right that I was not getting with my original fiction I did not have a place where I could throw something up and people would just flock to it and then read it and react to it so I started writing Harry Potter fan fiction and very much developed a lot of writing skills in that process and you know i wrote many very queer stories i meant i wrote a lot of stories about not belonging and figuring out finding your personal magic your personal power which i feel like at its root that was what harry potter strived to be right and now it's just devastating that it's completely that is completely tainted by JK Rowling just being a hypocrite and a bigot and so close-minded and so unable and, and unwilling, more than anything, unwilling to see how she is causing and perpetuating harm. And so it really, it's painful. so hard. It's so painful. She literally could have disappeared into a cave and been known for all the rest of time as the most beloved children's author, right? She was, she was um, like praise was doled out upon her that maybe she did not even totally deserve, but her influence was just so huge that people celebrated her in this incredible way that is a huge privilege. I'm trying really hard not to curse here. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I, I have such strong feelings because, you know, there are so many, so many young people who experience any, you know, take your pick, any ism on the bingo card, right? Yeah. And they read Harry Potter and felt like they could connect with this group of misfits, with this group of people who understood that something was systemically wrong with the world, that something was fundamentally off and they had to fight it and they had an obligation to do so. 
So she writes this thing and I, and Harry Potter is not like the text itself is not without its flaws. And I feel like if anyone were to go back and look at it today, you would notice how there's on the page transphobia, like written into it, right? There's on the page, there are on the page isms all over the place, right? Like I kind of tried to willfully ignore how poorly Cho Chang was written when I was a teen, because I was like, well, the rest of it is, there's mm -hmm. value in the rest of it. I'm gonna ignore this one character. Yeah. Which is also sad in a way because it was, it was kind of diminishing and erasing my relationship to it in a way. Like I did, like, because it was painful for me to acknowledge that this was terrible representation. That happens for so me, often though, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. That happens, yeah. That, 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 that happens so often. I mean, you know, I don't think that, I don't think that I saw myself represented in anything that I read until I was at least 30. Yeah. No, till, till Terry McMillan published Waiting to Exhale, I never saw I never saw a character that really represented my sort of experience. And the closest we got was the Cosby show on television. And we all know what happened with that. So, you know, also tainted, you know, and there's so many of these things. I mean, I was a huge Harry Potter fan, too, you know, but I don't know. It, it's very difficult. And, you know, as a black woman, you know, I often have to separate the the rest of the story from the representation, yes. Yes. as you were saying just now, in order in order to to be able to engage with the story and not to feel too upset about how I am represented or not. And I don't know whether it is actually possible in a case like J.K. Rowling to say, well, these are the great things about Harry Potter, but she's a terrible person because of this. You know, and I I really don't know. I'm still I'm still struggling with that. It's you know, there was a point when. You know, I would see her name and I would see it. I would say, oh, Harry Potter, how wonderful. And now I see her name and I roll my eyes and I think, what problematic thing is she about to say now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And, and people are always saying, I, I've two things I want to say. The first is that people are always saying, oh, well, you know, we can separate the art from the artist or, you know, she didn't write Harry Potter. Somebody else wrote Harry Potter, which is like, I, I get that people are trying to find a way to you know have ownership over and, and be able to retain this thing that they love but at the end of the day i do not believe you can separate the art from the artist if somebody is bigoted if somebody has problematic thinking like a problematic perspective of the world and they refuse to deal with it that shows up in their writing yeah and it's just yeah. a question of are we aware enough in the moment that we're reading it to notice it Right. And so like and 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 to your point, Sharon, about how not seeing representation really affects us. I think when I encountered Cho Chang in those mm -hmm. books, I, I had never seen good representation. So it just felt like more of the same. It didn't feel right. like anything of note. It was like, oh, you know, another Asian character who's whatever the Asians don't matter. It's fine. Yeah, uh, because that was what I had seen. And the only time I had I read a book, <laughs> the only time I had read a book about Asians was in the seventh grade. And it was The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. Oh, yes. Ooh. I remember that book. That's oh, my book. God. I, I am not a fan <laughs> of that book. Well, and, I don't know that I would read it the same way now. 
I read oh, it yeah. a long time ago. I read it a very long time ago. And it was interesting because it showed, but you know, thinking about it now, it had a very narrow and colonialist mindset. <laughs> right. Which I can imagine, I can quite imagine, but but you know, that kind of representation would not feel good. I mean, you know. But it was more or less back in the 1930s, maybe? I mean, what do you and, expect? <laughs> right. You know, and and she was a white woman who won all of these awards and got all of these accolades for writing the good earth and that became touted as like the example of a Chinese story. And I I was because I had read nothing with representation that that made me feel seen, when I read that book, I rejected it entirely as like, well, I'm Asian American. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing in there that's going to reflect me which is another sad kind of rejection of myself because there are, right, like culturally, my family history, the way that I was brought up, there should be little seeds of things, little seeds of connections that I can see in a story about a Chinese family, even if it's a completely different experience, a completely different time period, but I just rejected it completely and was like, there's nothing here for me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really difficult. I, you know, I had I had similar problems when I started reading books sort of set in the time of enslavement. And it's like, you know, the, the characters were often so one dimensional. The perspective was the white perspective. And, you know, it was really difficult to see myself and my history, uh, um, you know, right. anywhere, right. anywhere in that. And, and but, I, you know, I will say that, you know, and this is coming out of someone growing up in a post-colonial setting that, you know, I had the books that were available to me. And the first time I read them, I read them uncritically. I read them because yeah. they were there. When I have gone back to some of those as an older person with a, a, little, a little more in my head, I like to think that I had when I was a teenager, um, you know, then I see them completely differently. And, you know, there's so much, there's so much work that's, that was presented as excellent that is actually hugely problematic, isn't it? I think in my own personal experience, standards have like risen in the sense that when I was younger I think I was different from you Emily in the sense that when I saw an Asian girl I was just like Asian girl that that meets the baseline like let's connect (laughs) on that level but I realized that later on that was problematic right like just because she's Asian doesn't mean that you know that's the right representation or that I should connect her if it's portrayed through a bigoted white lens and I think that that's what authors and writers like you are doing which is raising the standards so that young people can actually look at them critically look back at these old writings and say that actually isn't what I would like to see in my own representation right yeah I I definitely remember the era of you know black person on tv kind of thing right and it's like you were grateful for anything that looked a little bit like you but you know you go back and you look at it and you say well that's not it though that's not it and that's why I think it's so important for us to tell our own stories and share our own experiences so that we can help to create characters and people and situations that reflect us and that others like us will relate to. Yes. Yeah. And that makes me think of, I guess, kind of a contradiction that I feel like I've noticed, which is sometimes, even though, you know, I don't see a story that represents me, or I feel like with my peers, sometimes we don't see a story that we feel like we connect with accurately. And um, as you guys mentioned, like we see 
examples of characters that are either written through a lens that is not true to the character and does not have any kind of authenticity behind it. And yet, at the same time, I feel like sometimes we're also hesitant to bring our own narratives and stories into the world because we think there's not a place for this. This isn't welcome here. And so just something that I've seen among in my limited experience as a young person, um, but something that I've seen among my peers is that it takes us a lot of work to be able to understand that, hey, like there is a space for my story. There is a space for, for my voice here. Even though I even though I know that it's missing, sometimes I still feel like I can't bring myself to to really come out with it. So I was wondering what your perspective is on that, or is that a struggle that you have experience with? I have so many so many thoughts on this topic. Um, first is that so I've always wanted to be a writer, um, and but when I was a kid, you know, I would say, oh, I want to be a writer, but it never felt truly like something I could be because it did not seem like. Asians were writing books like there was Amy Tan and that was it and I w had no interest in reading Amy Tan because it felt like she did not represent me in any way it felt like she a, a lot of people and I, I had this experience in grad school too where anytime people read my work and I was talking I was writing some fictional thing that was somehow cultural and somebody in the room would say oh this reminds me of Amy Tan and it's like there are more East Asian authors out there than Amy Tan. My work is not like Amy Tan's, you know, and and I, I have nothing against her, but just that we are from different generations and different lived experiences. And and A East Asians are not a monolith. And so, you know, so I I encountered that that struggle of am I ever going to be able to be a writer? Because it seems like only white people can be writers. I encountered that when I was younger. And now as an author who's putting out work, what I notice is we're always clamoring to say, we're not a monolith. There are so many different lived experiences uh, for any identity. There's an infinite number of permutations of what a specific identity and intersection can look like, right? And yet, and yet reviewers will judge a book by saying, well, this author did not capture this, this experience does not feel true to my lived experience. And so I'm rejecting this book. And it's, I, it's a different situation when you reject it because it's written by somebody who, you know, um, to Sophia's point, has no sense. There's no authenticity. They're from completely outside that culture, like a white person writing, you know, any, any non-white experience. Mm. Um, there's a difference between rejecting that and saying they don't know what they're talking about versus reading a book written by an author who identifies with the experience that they are capturing whether it's fictionalized or or not and saying well that doesn't that's that doesn't make sense to me because i didn't grow up like that or i i did not have experiences like that and so i'm rejecting yeah. this book and i'm gonna you know, bump the rating down and I'm not going to recommend it to people. I'm going to tell people that it's not a book worth reading. Like that is also a problem, right? And so we we have this, this is a, a, a pattern that I observe that I am very disturbed by in BIPOC communities where we understand that we have to support each other, but people really struggle because for so long, white supremacy has taught us 
that there are limited seats at the table and we need to elbow each other out of the way to get there. And we have to destroy that. We have to destroy that idea. We have to support each other. I could not agree with you more, Emily. This, 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 this idea of this idea of limitation and lack. We need to get out of that. We need to realize that we have options. We need to realize that we can support each other. We need to realize that nobody's free till everybody's free, right? We need to realize all of those things and we need to, to lift each other up. You know, that does not hurt us. That does not hurt us. That helps everybody. So I'm so yeah. glad that you said that because, you know, that's the way I feel too. I, you know, let's not, you know, white supremacy wants to keep us fighting among ourselves for crumbs. Right. right. Let's bake our own pie and take the whole damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> And also, you know, if if somebody reads a book mm-hmm. that is by an author whose background on the page, like, uh, you know, whose like written bio has a background that matches theirs, but then that reader reads the book and, and doesn't connect with it at all, that reader should go and tell their own story because yeah. we are not a monolith yeah. and we need more stories. We just we just need more. Yeah. Um, you know, this idea you don't that... have to tear it down, right? We don't have to tear it right. down. We can write our own. We can we can we can share our perspective. We can say, here's where I connected, here's where I didn't. You know, this is the story that reflects my experience. Let's have more stories. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember one of the very first episode uh podcast topics that we discussed was this idea of um, multiple forms of representation and multiple stories and just because one story doesn't match your own right. doesn't mean that it's the only one out there and I think for us that was almost like cathartic to discuss because we've been we've grown up um, with we're lucky we have more access to a, an array of stories that we can pick from that we can critically understand hey for example Harry Potter is not a good representation um, but at the same time sometimes we're faced with this like sense of uh like obligation to either stick to a certain story or narrative or to- or be told that this is supposed this is what we're supposed to emulate or this is what we're supposed to assume um so it's really really powerful to hear you affirm that um and to know that yeah. this is not just an idea that we stumbled upon but something that we are actively trying to create in our communities Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the second part of our discussion with panelists Emily X R Pan and Sharon Hurley Hall. All right, Sophia, you want to start off our next question? Yeah. So the third question that we have is just what um, events, instances, or other situations have molded your professional journey and who you are right now? And we'd like to ask, how did it differ from your initial expectations or assumptions in your professional life? Ooh, that's a big question. My professional life actually consists of a number of things. And I, I was a journalist. Um, I was a teacher. I taught journalism at Coventry University. Then I was a freelance writer. And now I am working in diversity, equity, and inclusion in different capacities and running the anti-racism newsletter. And so part of the formation for that was my professional experience as a journalist and teacher. And part of it was my experiences living and working in different countries and my experiences of racism. Uh, and you know, I've experienced racism everywhere I've lived. I have so far lived in several Caribbean countries, the UK and France, and I've spent uh, quite a lot of time in the States where my sister lives. And so those experiences of existing while black and white majority spaces 
are what got me started on on where I am now and led to what I'm doing now because when George Floyd was murdered, I wrote a piece called I'm Tired of Racism, which was, you know, I suddenly realized how much of that I've been holding and not dealing with. And so the writing started out being cathartic and people started responding to it. And what I realized is that, you know, I, I'm never going to run out of things to say about racism. I don't think most people who face isms will ever run out of things to say about the isms that they face because, because you know, the world is broken in that particular way or perhaps it works as intended, depending on which perspective you choose to have on the day. And, and so, you know, trying to unpack that and trying to move from that place of unpacking it to, okay, what do we do about it? What can people learn? How can I help people grow in their understanding of what it's like to walk in my shoes or what their colleagues might be experiencing so that they can do something to interrupt it to you know to interrupt racism to interrupt whatever it happens to be to to understand its intersectionality to 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 get a glimpse into this world and then do something to interrupt it i suppose all of those things came together to bring me to the point where i am now and i'm now i'm not even sure if i fully answered your question but i'll i'll, I'll be quiet for a minute <laughs> i think the 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 thing is that and this i don't know it maybe sounds almost idealistic is not the word but it maybe sounds like too much like a, a hallmark card type thing but i just really think that i'm shaped by literally everything that happens to me and so so much of my lived experience is as sharon was saying those isms mm -hmm. and you know i i think every piece of fiction i write is forever and ever going to be wrestling with the idea of identity because that's what I've been wrestling with my entire life. Um, I, and I think this is common for fiction writers to have themes that they, they kind of can't stop exploring because they're trying to wrestle with something themselves. And for me, it's very much this feeling of not belonging, of not, not being enough, not fitting in, not fitting a specific mold. You know, everywhere that I moved as I was growing up, I always was the token Asian in school maybe there would be like two other kids right yeah. uh, and we would all get lumped together like the the asians um and that was you know a very, very strange experience to always have been the other i remember i did not understand that i was a different race for a very long time because i lived in um this tiny little place in Wisconsin. Um, I don't think there were black people in my school. I don't think there were um, any Latinx people. There was one student who had moved from Mexico and that was that was it for the Latinx population. Um, and there were a couple Asians, me and like someone who was quite a few years older than me in the entire elementary school. And so everywhere I went, I was hyper aware at all times. I wasn't like I wasn't consciously thinking about it, right? But in hindsight, I understood, I've always understood that I have been different, that people will see me and immediately view me as different. But I did not understand that I was a different race because everyone I saw around me, we all had light colored skin, mm -hmm. right? Like 
if I held out my arm and my friends held out their arms, many times they would be more tan than me because they'd been playing outside all summer, even though they're white. And so I did not understand that they would still discriminate against me on the basis of other things. And I think it, it was very kind of jarring to realize that I had aligned myself with the oppressor as like a survival instinct, right? As, as a way of surviving, like to be like, oh, we are one in the same, but actually we're not. And to begin to realize, oh, other people are forever going to look at me differently. And that was a very slow realization for me because I was always in those majority white spaces until I went to college. I went to college in New York City and suddenly I was so used to it that I remember going on a trip to, I think, upstate New York and being like, why is it a sea of white people? <laughs> <laughs> because I had, suddenly I was used to the diversity. Like you step into a subway car and it's people from all walks of life and all different backgrounds, right? And yeah, so I think all of that has very much, I'm just, I'm kind of rambling a little bit now, but all of that has very much shaped everything about how I think about character and my person and my experience. I relate so much to that for slightly different reasons because although I grew up mostly in the Caribbean, we moved around a lot. So I was always, you know, I was the foreigner, even in a place with, that was majority black. I had a different accent from the people that I was going to school with. And then, and then that carried through later when I went to live in England, uh, you know, when I was older. And then I was, you know, the black person in the office or whatever it happened to be. And I mean, I lived in London for a while where the streets were multicultural, but that didn't mean that the offices you worked in were multicultural, you know what I mean? And, and so, I definitely relate to uh, so many times in my life feeling like I, I I don't think I've ever felt like I really fitted in anywhere all the way. You know, I can relate right. to certain things within each place that I'm in and I'm adaptable because I'm used to moving around, but I don't okay. necessarily feel that I fit in, uh, which is something, you know, a realization that I, you know, I've come to on and off and I now just accept this as part of Sharon, you know, that feeling, that feeling of, otherness and slight alienation but of course it finds I think that has a lot to do with the way that I approach the stuff that I write in an effort to find commonalities and find and expose commonalities you know I you know I often say to people that you know we we think of racism as a thing that exists where we happen to be right but it actually exists practically everywhere and Certain things about how it plays out are different in each country, but there's a lot of underlying commonality. And because I have lived in so many places, I can often pick out that and bring it bring it out into the light. So I see that as part of my role as well. Yeah, I think I have something to say on regards to finding identity and how moving around has all shaped our identities and who we are, or maybe our lack of identity by moving around so much. I think in my own experiences, when I moved to Taiwan, uh, I expected to be very welcome because I was so surprised. Everybody there was Asian, everybody there was so comfortable in their own country of origin, like very much so. And I think even if I was, even when I was surrounded by a group of Asians, I still felt like an outsider because my Chinese wasn't that fluent. I, you know, I came from another place. I think moving in and of itself is something that is part of an isolating process, which is why so many of the world like the immigrants around the world have this kind of identity crisis or 
like missing puzzle piece i think we need to find use using commonality to help find ourselves don't you don't you think that that the experience of moving gives you a shared identity with other people who have that yeah. similar experience even though yes. they may not look like you because that those are the people that i find i connect with most yes. and they're not yes. they don't necessarily look like me you know they haven't grown up in the same place but we all have that common experience of having moved around and having been othered and so that gives us a lot to talk about <laughs> i also feel like when you default to feeling like you are the other there are observations that you can make mm. that are just really hard to notice when you are part of a community and it just feels like that's the air you breathe yes yeah. yes and so it's i think and and maybe this is why you're so drawn also to anti-racism work Sharon is you know being having so much experience observing from the outside of how mm -hmm. a system works and how toxicity yes. is spread among a group of people who are not necessarily ill-intentioned but they're just right. not opening themselves up exactly to other experiences exactly exactly yes I, I, I do think, I, I do agree with you that, you know, outsiders do have an observational role, <laughs> for sure. And it's always very interesting, actually, to come back to a society that you've lived in and see it from the outside. Because I remember, I remember quite clearly at one point, I'd, I'd been living in England for about five years and I came back to visit family in Barbados. And we were sitting in a room and everybody was talking and I suddenly realized that I was no longer a part of it because I had no idea of the day-to-day -day stuff that they were talking about and it was very interesting you know I was I was I sort of at one removed from it all while still not feeling fully part of the society I was in in England so <laughs> you know there's that too right yeah and it but reminds yes. me of um Sharon what you mentioned earlier about finding the shared experience with other people who even though their other life experiences yeah. may have nothing to do with yours the fact that they also have had that othering yeah. experience of kind of being pulled in different directions and never feeling like you're fully um, integrated into one. And this is like way back to something you said way earlier, Emily, but about Harry Potter. Um, I just remember seeing this like analysis and it was like, yeah, kids want to have this idea of magic in the world. Kids want to live in a small, like a close knit um, community where they feel like they belong. And for me, that made me realize like, yeah, that's so much of my, that reflects on so much of the content that I chose to engage with as a kid and now, and the kind of future that I want for myself is because of that experience of, I, I want to belong somewhere and I want to find that community also. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, we are kind of born with the instinct of wanting to connect with each other and wanting to find community. And so that's another reason why I think being othered has such a lasting impact on us mm. because it's that primal instinct kind of running up against the wall over and over again. Yeah, I think then we can move on to the next question, which is kind of things that we already talked about um, implicitly as well. It's just how has your cultural heritage or lived experiences reflect in the experiences or work that you've accomplished um, in your own job or your professional journey? And furthermore, what work have you accomplished that you're most proud of? Hmm. So many big <laughs> questions. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that 
going back to how I'm always writing about identity again and again, I'm always exploring what it means to be true to my identity. That very much plays into how I think about my writing and my characters. And it has become so important to me to try to capture stories that are aggressively Asian American. Um, you know, like I, I have, seen out in the world so many stories like the good earth where it's about china or it may be it's a fantasy world a secondary world that's inspired by an asian country and i don't see enough and i'm, I'm hungry for more asian american stories and and an incredible number of these have begun appearing especially over the last decade right and i'm grateful for that but I constantly do interview questions um, where I am asked, you know, generally by white people about the Asian influences in my stories. And I always have to push back and say, I'm writing an aggressively American story. This is an Asian American story. And that intersection is very important mm -hmm. because being in diaspora is its own experience it's a very very specific experience and i i write for people who are growing up or have grown up the way that i did feeling like i had not even a foot in in both worlds right i was always kind of just hovering in the doorway peering in um wherever i went whether i was in asia whether i was in the us and and wanting to honor the kind of isolation that that brings and well honor is maybe a weird weird word specifically for isolation but specifically honoring how we can find ourselves in that isolation you know and how we can discover what's important to us and, and sort of craft and shape our own identities rather than being told what we need to be yeah that's, that's a so really important. beautiful way of putting that <laughs> I don't have anything to add to what Emily said, really, other than that I, I'm, you know, I'm happy to see something similar happening in the Caribbean as well. I, you know, there was a stage at which we had a lot of stories that reflected where our parents and grandparents were coming from and reflect telling those stories and they were important. We have fewer stories that reflect what it's like to be living in the, and growing up in the Caribbean today, but I'm starting to see that change. Um, one of my favorite modern Barbadian writers is Shakira Bourne, and she writes young adult fiction as well as other stuff. And, you know, she manages to, to make us to write stories that are situated in the present, but also take account of the heritage. And she does it so beautifully. And I think we need more of that kind of thing. Right. I think with this balance between past and present is something that we can find resonance with as well. Uh, something that comes to mind off the top of my head is just um, the work by Ocean Guam, um, which I personally have resonated a lot with as immigrant, queer, Asian, just a lot of different boxes that he all checks. Um, <laughs> but he does a lot to combine past and present. And I think what Emily and Sharon, you guys both said, which is finding a combination between the two and not emphasizing one so much that you forget about the other is so important to people who have lived through both things, who are not just from the past, but live in the present as well. Yeah. All right, a little interesting question. Tell us about your current or upcoming work, project you have that you're doing right now. 
We'd love to hear it. Okay. So I have three things that I'm working on right now because, because I can't ever settle to just one thing. My, my, the most immediate project is I started collecting some of the essays that I'd written in the first year of my newsletter, and I have a few unpublished pieces. And so I've created a collection called I'm Tired of Racism, which should have been out already, but will be out sometime in the next couple of months. And so that's been a really, the really interesting process, you know, taking something that comes out in newsletter form and turning it into a book and, 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 and reconnecting the pieces in different ways so that there's some sort of narr narrative has been really interesting as a writer to do that. Um, and my second, my second project is I wrote a book on colorism, which was based on research in Barbados. It was called Exploring Shadism. Uh, it's been 20 years since the original research project, so I think it's time for an update. So I'm currently working on a survey so I can get new data and publish an update maybe in the next year to year and a half. And then the Diverse Leaders Group, which is about um, embedding diversity and helping people to lead with that in mind. Uh, my particular bit of that is going to be the Anti-Racist Leaders Group. But, you know, we're currently doing an Indiegogo to collect funds to get it started. And I'm really excited about that. So everything's kind of coming together and everything's all within the same area. And it feels very aligned, which is great. I love that. That all sounds amazing, Sharon. <laughs> I am under contract for a book, a young adult book. Um, I don't think I, I can really say too much about it in part because I am still writing it. Um, but I, I'm all, I also have multiple projects on the back burner and um, one of them is what I hope will be my debut adult novel. I haven't sold it yet. I'm trying to finish drafting it first, but all of the stories that I'm working on right now are, are actually very queer. I think for a long time, I did not feel like I had, ownership is like the wrong word. I did not feel like I had agency to write queer stories mm -hmm. when I wasn't out, which is a whole different, a whole different problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, because the internet likes to sort of force people into certain boxes and has, no regard for how private many identities can be. Mm. And so I was really afraid to write queer content because of that. Um, and I, now that I'm like out and proud, I feel like finally I get to tell queer stories and, and I can be a, a little bit less fearful of that. Um, but it's, it's almost, it's a, you know, it's almost embarrassing to, to have to navigate that, this feeling of, oh, I'm afraid to tell these stories for X, Y, and Z reasons uh, that are also reasons that make me deeply, deeply angry, right? Like, why are why does the internet, why do people feel like they have, you know, any say over how somebody defines themselves and what stories they tell within yeah. their own experience? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Again, again, I relate, Emily, again, I relate because, you know, there are always people that are willing to tell you that you're not enough or you're not the right person. And sometimes it takes real strength of will not to let that seep into your consciousness and to rise above it and tell the stories that you know matter. 
and you know share the perspective that you know is important you know i um yeah you know you know you know some people will say okay so you know what you know what what do you know about all of this you know you're not, you're not even you know you're not even american or you know you're married to a white guy what do you really know about racism or whatever it happens to be and i you know i i say well you know i'm still me living in this skin having had these experiences and none of those other things negate that part of me but you know people do try to 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 exclude you and uh, or to box you in <laughs> i'm not really sure which of those is worse and so i'm you know i'm really pleased to hear that you're telling more more stories more queer stories and that you're you know but i recognize that sometimes it's an effort right it is an effort it's what the thing is also because readers on the internet expect you to expect you a creator to arrive into the world fully formed yes <laughs> and they don't it's not like that they, at all <laughs> it's not like that for anyone right no. things like gender and sexuality are fluid mm -hmm. and and to to try to impose a specific identity on somebody or try or to gatekeep somebody's yes. experience is a way of rejecting that fluidity and basically saying no you're you're either this or you're that yeah. there's no there's no in between i have yeah. you know i have a friend who um got a lot of flack for writing a trans story mm -hmm. and then years later figured out that they are trans mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. They didn't know it at the time that they were writing it. They just knew it was a very important story for them to tell. Yeah. And they got a lot of flag on the internet because the internet assumed that they were cisgender. Mm -hmm. um, I also think about, so my nesting partner came out as trans and she always talks about how the really frustrating thing, the reason why it took her over three decades to figure out she's trans is because everything in media perpetuates this idea that if you're trans, you know it when you're seven or you know it when you're 12, you figure it out when you're going through puberty, right? Mm -hmm. It took her three decades to even be begin to question gender. To, and, then, and then as soon as she figured it out, it was this domino effect of all of these things suddenly make sense. All of these things she had struggled with her entire life suddenly made so much sense and you know I I just think about like if she were a public figure on the internet people mm. would have been would have boxed her in in a very specific way yes and right. you know I I don't I, I I always fail to understand why you know the internet at large expects people to have everything sorted and figured out immediately because we're always learning and growing and we're always reassessing things in, in light of, of, of new input and things that we learn about ourselves. And we, and we learn these things constantly. You know, I've learned things about myself in the last five years that I did not know at the start of the process, you know, and, and the more things that you do, I mean, you know, just to give a, a completely different kind of example, you know, I always wondered, okay, so what is this writing that I can do for? What is it for? And when I started writing the newsletter, I said, okay, now I know what it's for. But I couldn't have told you that 10 years ago or five years ago or even two and a half years ago. And, and, and also, I think people don't recognize that we, and 
encompass and encapsulate multiple identities, multiple parts of ourselves. And they often want us to pick one, right? Mm -hmm. They want us to pick one thing, right? And and we and I don't think anybody is one thing, <laughs> you know. Nor are we, nor are we, you know, one half of you know one aspect of a binary thing either. You know, we are we are fluid mm -hmm. and we are multiple. And I think we need to recognize that. On that topic about having multiple identities and with Sharon's work on racism, I think and also Emily for queerness and how those things are also fluid. I think a lot of the reason why society tends to box us, to box us in is because they have preconceived notions that this is what racism looks like, you know, it's this, this, and this, and this is what queerness is like. It's like these three things or, you know, it's a set amount of lists. So I'm wondering when you guys are trying to debunk these things or, you know, through your work or through your writing, what is the approach that you take in terms of saying that, hey, it's not actually just limited to this. It's a wide variety of things. And what is the tone or the angle that you use? I, I often enter into it from the point of view of storytelling. So I will talk about an experience that I had. I will talk about, about the feelings it stirred up. You know, I'm, you know, part of that is, you know, it's, it's that mix for me of the journalism and the teaching. So I'm, I'm factual, but I also want to give a lesson, right? And so I will say, okay, this thing happened to me. This is how it landed with me. Here's how it could have been handled differently. Uh, you know, one of my, one of my most um, popular pieces was one which I called, I think, what, what if the tables were turned? And so I talked about what it's like to carry this heritage, right? You know, how would you feel if your children had been trafficked away from you? How would you feel if you'd, you know, you'd been made to work without pay? How would you feel if every time you walked into the room, somebody would assume that you were the person making the tea and not the person giving the presentation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just, and just you just, just laid out some, some scenarios and situations that have actually happened. That's the thing. I know I don't, I don't actually have to make anything up. This is all stuff that happens. If it, if it hasn't happened to me personally, it's happened to somebody that I know, you know, so every person I know, every black person, many Asian people, many people that face isms have this experience, these experiences where they are othered in some way, you know? So I have, and, and even things that you, you assume are in the past. So, you know, we all know, for example, that in England back in the fifties in the Windrush generation, because it was recently Windrush day, you know, black people missed out on housing. When my parents were there in the 60s, they missed out on housing. I turned up for a house in the 1990s only to hear that the guy, that, you know, the guy took one look at me and said that the house had been sold that morning, but it hadn't been sold when I was on the phone, right? So there's a way in which stories repeat. And sometimes by just laying out the facts and saying, okay, well, how would you feel in this situation? People can come to an understanding. And Further to that, I, I, I often try to give them something to do. I try to give readers something to do that they can do in their own sphere. And, you know, it can be a small thing. It can be a small thing like paying attention and noticing. Because, you know, once you notice it and you start seeing it, once you see racism, once you see, you know, homophobia, transphobia, once you see any of those things, once you start to really pay attention, you can't unsee them. You can't not notice them. And then, you know, you have the obligation to do something, I think. For me, in my fiction, the way that it kind of gets distilled down is through different different experiences that different characters have. You know, all of my characters 
all of my characters have little bits and pieces of me and my experiences in them. And I think I try really hard to make everybody, make all of my characters fully formed in a way where they feel real and they're not, they're not just on the page to be an example of this, an example of that. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's something that I think about a lot in terms of, you know, what identity, what, ex what isms, what experiences am I giving to each of my characters? And it's not, it's not always the most explicit, like, oh, this has this representation, mm -hmm. right? Like in my, in my newest novel, um, I gave one of my characters chronic pain. She has debilitating menstrual pain, which is something mm -hmm. that I'd grown up with and been embarrassed to talk about because it felt like if I was at work and I said, I'm having a really rough day because I'm on my period, it felt like, well, yeah. the vast majority of the people I work with in this office all get periods and everyone sucks it up and just does it. And I did not realize, um, I did not realize until very like recent years that not everybody was dealing with the type of pain that I was dealing with. Yeah. And so I felt weak for not being able to just suck it up and work through things. I felt weak for the fact that there were multiple times when my partner almost called 911 because my period was so bad. Um, and I felt embarrassed and like I couldn't talk about it. It's like because, yourself, right? Right, right. So, yeah. so I gave my character this debilitating menstrual pain because if I as a younger person had seen that written somewhere in literature I would have felt like oh I'm not weird right like this is an experience that's common and when I started to speak more publicly about how debilitating my cramps could be about how I would be passing out or you know on on the floor in a cold sweat shaking unable to even walk to the other room for a glass of water and pain meds um, so many people started telling me I have these same experiences and I've never felt like I could talk about them and how sad it is that a significant chunk of the population might all be suffering from really, you know, not everybody has debilitating cramps, but a lot of people do. And we all feel like we can't talk about it. Um, yeah. and chronic pain in general conversation. I have, you know, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and I deal with a lot of chronic pain and and that's another, that's like another facet of my identity that's invisible, right? To the outside world, I look like I'm happy and healthy mm. and totally functioning when I don't wake up. There's not a single day that I wake up without pain somewhere, right? And so mm. that also shapes me. And, and so in my writing, when I'm, when I am sort of like capturing these experiences and pinning them down on the page. I'm not so much thinking, I want this representation. I want that representation. I'm just trying to write something that feels very true to me. So just as a final uh, question to pick your brains a little bit while we have you here, do you think that we as people of color, as queer people, as people with uh, multitudes within us, do you think that we have an obligation to write about our experiences offering, um, involving those aspects of our identities? I, I think given the current state, given the the percentages when you look at the breakdowns of how many authors are white and how many authors are not, given all of that, 
currently, I would say, no, we do not have an obligation. We just need to be out there. We just need to have more of us writing stories and showing up like somebody who is not white can also write a secondary world fantasy, right? And nobody should feel obligated to put painful experiences down on the page. Nobody right. should feel right. obligated to have to, you know, distill an element of their personality and then have to publicly defend mm -hmm. it again and again and again to reviewers and interviewers, etc. That is, nobody should have to subject themselves to that if they don't want to. And we need as, as many BIPOC people to be published as possible so that readers can tr start to change their expectations over right. who right. is allowed to do what. Yes. And that's a different conversation than, you know, I don't think anybody should have an obligation to write their experiences, but I do think we need more experiences being written so that we can combat the monoliths, yeah. right? So it's like those two can be true at the same time. Like yeah. we just need more published. More is going to solve the problem of everything. I I I agree. I agree with, with, with Emily when I, you know, thinking about that question, I don't think that there's an obligation necessarily necessarily but I do think it's better for us to tell our own stories than have someone who doesn't have the lived experience tell, try to tell them for us because then you get all the harmful representation and all of those other issues when we're telling our own stories we're telling something that is authentic and hopefully relatable I, I also agree with your other point Emily because I think it's okay to tell stories that aren't rooted in oppression and share some of the joy of our experience as well and move into different genres of, of, of storytelling Right, you know, we, you know, we don't have to tell the history of how our people were oppressed in every single thing we write. Please, please, can we have, you know, four black women or four Asian women living in the twenty-second, in the twenty-first century, you know, living their life as thirty-somethings or forty-somethings? Can we have our own version of, you know, I don't know, waiting to exhale or sex in the city? Can we have those stories as well? Right? Can we have stories that represent? The, the multiplicity of our experiences, right? Because, yeah. because the history and the history and the oppression, they're real and they're valid and they're part of the background to what we're doing now. But it doesn't mean that we have to stay in that space all the time. And I, so I don't think, I don't think that there's an obligation to have everything you write be meaningful and worthy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or rooted in oppression. It, you can write, you know, write a beach read as a black writer, as an Asian writer, right? Yeah. You know, write something light, write something joyous, right? There is Not an obligation, value. but the more, yes, the more stories, write fantasy. The more stories that we tell, the more we normalize the fact that it is okay for us to tell all these stories. And that's where we need to get to, to shift that really horrible percentage where, I don't know, it's something like 97% of books is, is in the 90s are you know are white people and 80 something percent of them are men <laughs> some something ridiculous like that i don't know if my stats are, are accurate but they're not far off <laughs> there is so much value in us showing up taking up space having mm -hmm. our names and our faces out there so that other people so that the next generation of writers feels like it is something that they can do right yes. like it would yeah. have been so valuable for me as, a, as a, a, a child who knew I wanted to write books, it would have been so valuable for me to see 
authors just existing, yes. like a Asian yes. authors just existing, no matter what they were writing. All, all I heard of was Amy Tan and she was this mythical creature who didn't feel real, you know? Yeah. Oh, yes, agreed. Wow, I think that that is such an amazing note um, to, to end on because you're so right. We There is so much space for our joyous stories as well. Right. And I think this has been a conversation that has left us really hopeful and um, really, really thankful that we had this opportunity to speak with you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much for your very time. Very fun. It was. Thank it you. was. I'm happy to have met you too, Emily. <laughs> yeah, this is wonderful. I feel like we need to get a coffee or something at some point. I know. When we're in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, great. Well, thank you. thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate you and we wish you luck with your future projects and everything that the future has in store for you. Thank yeah. you thank so you much. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. So our panel has concluded and we are kind of fangirling right now because that was truly a transformative. We are in awe. It was a wonderful discussion and we wanted to share our major takeaways and the highlights really of um, the conversation we, we just had with Sharon and Emily. So Sophia, what's your, your biggest standout moment? Yeah. Although there were a ton of good points, I think the biggest one for me is just a takeaway about what we should do as BIPOC um, people and members of the community in terms of art and literature and just general awareness. So in in terms of Shan's newsletter and Emily's work and her books, I think the takeaway is, is that we need as many voices as possible. And these voices can be varied from their message, from their purpose. But the conclusion is, is that the more voices, the better, and that we should always be on the lookout to recognize different experiences and different perspectives because we're not a monolith as we have talked about before in another podcast yes and uh if you're hungering for more about that you should check out our episode on representation and multiplicity which is really great and discusses the need for us to continue sharing our stories and the need for all manner of perspective and um and sharing and yeah i think to me that was it was really powerful to hear these um brilliant panelists kind of affirm that because we really do look up to them in the sense that like yes. they're out here doing the work um and we we want to emulate that and to and it's just it's really great to me that you know they also have that understanding of yes. I, I'm going to put Other. myself out here um yeah. and we all kind of had that shared experience I feel like it was a really special experience to be able to say we all have this uh knowledge of what it's like to be othered but in spite of that we're going to continue sharing the story we are going to continue expressing yes, not just yeah. our pain and our history and kind of um exercising all of that that needs to be out but sharing our joy as well i'm really glad we ended on that note because more than anything i feel like we need to remind ourselves that like the isms which i think was a characteristic that we discussed a lot yep. they can define us like our identities are a mosaic but we exist beyond that as well like it is really what we want it to be. And I think it's powerful that we had the chance today to reaffirm that agency. Thank you guys for listening to this episode today. And we hope that you guys come back for more, feel inspired and feel like you can have the bravery to pursue different things and speak up on the things that you want to be spoken about, even though other people might not be speaking about it as well. Yeah, yeah. be on the lookout for more soon. Thank you. Thank you.